Hello, I'm Lou Mirando, and welcome to today's reading of USA Today for Monday, February 26, 2024, by David Robinson. The Shane Levere was counting the blocks before she could make it home to bed. It was a summer night at 3 a.m. She had been at a family gathering and was a designated driver. Now with her stepdaughters and another passenger safely aboard, she hit the gas at a green light in Syracuse, New York. Three blocks from home, she thought. Out of nowhere, a police cruiser hurled down the avenue. Despite the red light commanding traffic to stop, the police officer slammed into Laverde's four-door sedan, ripping off her rear bumper and sending her car careening. Why didn't she see or hear the cruiser coming? The police officer had not turned on his lights and sirens, she would later find out. Searing pain inflamed her neck and spine. They were the first moments of the agony that she would haunt her for the next decade, spreading through her back, her shoulders, her arms. Neither pain medications nor strenuous physical therapy would give her much relief. Standing at the same intersection last summer, ten years into the recovery that never happened, Levere's eyes welled with tears. Memories flooded back from a losing court battle here in the state and the city of about 150,000 in upstate New York. Her lawsuit against police was tossed on appeal, leaving her with little recourse to offset the cost of life-altering back pain. The Department of Justice System said that the 52-year-old black woman seemed designed to protect the officer who caused the crash. It didn't seem concerned about helping innocent victims. It's like police can do whatever they want and get away with it, Liver said, and I'm still here picking up the pieces. Hers was only one of many lives that have been shattered by police cruiser crashes in hamlets and cities across the country. The crashes are part of a national public safety crisis that is only now coming into a sharper focus through deep reporting in the USA Today network project called Driving Force. For Driving Force, USA Today's New York newsrooms partnered with Syracuse University and the Central Current to investigate for the first time a 10-year span of these crashes across New York. Our early data analysis from one example city, Syracuse, shows that from 2013 to 2022, hundreds of collisions involving law enforcement vehicles exacted a very human and sociological toll. Officers faced little or no discipline after many of these wrecks, some of which left victims permanently injured. Journalists spent months interviewing dozens of crash victims, collision reconstruction experts, attorneys, and driving instructors for their revelatory investigation. They analyzed thousands of pages of court records and data on the police crashes, particularly pertaining to the Syracuse Police Department, our most complete set of information from one city so far. Officers with track records of unsafe driving sometimes just stay behind the wheel, despite piling up crashers that devastate the lives of civilians. Penalties that officers face for driving recklessly are sometimes connected solely to how much they have damaged police vehicles. Have they also damaged civilians? not just car, cop cars. The question is limited or ignored together. Police departments handle most investigations of their known officers, raising conflict of interest concerns and questions about officers who face no difference. In contrast, civilians must prove police active, acted with reckless disregard for safety to overcome broad legal immunity that shields emergency responders. The steep state legal standard helps police avoid crash lawsuits win appeals or push to limit settlements. Thousands of police officers need more emergency response driving training, both in academies and on the job, but we found that driver training standards in a state new like New York can lag national trends. Instead, state officials are beefing up weapons training. 
The resulting carnage is distressing. About 52,000 Americans were injured in crashes involving law enforcement vehicles in pursuit from 2017 to 2021. The most recent data shows while fatal police pursuits cost about 2,400 lives. These statistics get even grimmer considering evidence-based solutions for reducing police crashes exist, such as a federally-backed program that reduced Las Vegas police crashes by 14% and injuries by 31%. Change is slow, and just because you build it doesn't mean that they come, said Treisman, the federal expert who spearheaded the evaluation of Vegas, turning around the included speed caps, mandatory post-academy driver training, new pursuit policies, and other officer education. This story is part of Driving Force, a police accountability project meant to expose and document the prevalence of police vehicle accidents in New York. This joint investigation between USA Today Network New York and Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communication was supported with funding from the data-driven reporting project. That project is funded by the Google News Initiative as partnership with Northwestern University Medville. This reporting was completed in partnership with the Central Current, a Syracuse-based nonprofit newsroom. Next story is titled, After South Carolina, Trump's Set to Move On to General, by Susan Page. Haley who? After Donald Trump routed Nikki Haley in the season's first primary in New Hampshire, he spent his victory speech ridiculing everything from her ethics to her barrel. But after an even bigger victory in South Carolina primary Saturday, he didn't mention her name. Welcome to the next phase of the presidential race. Haley insists she's not ready to abandon the GOP field to Trump, and she has the campaign cash necessary to stay in, at least through Super Tuesday on March 5th. Then, contests in 15 states and one territory will award a third of the delegates to the Republican National Convention in July. But after a 20 percentage point thumping in her home state, there is no longer a realistic path for the former South Carolina governor to deny Trump the nomination. The primary ends tonight, the Trump campaign declared Saturday in a written statement, and it is time to turn to the general election so we can defeat Crooked Joe. In its approach, Trump was embracing on Saturday in his victory speech and early remarks to the Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington suburb, he mostly focused his fire on President Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee. At the conservative conclave, Trump repeat, read prepared remarks mostly word-for-word word off the teleprompter, although he did ramble through some favorite anecdotes and jibes in a speech that lasted for an hour and a half. I've never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now, Trump declared. Though he faced a dozen credible challenges when the campaign began, Trump has triumphed in the four opening states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and now South Carolina. Exit polls in South Carolina showed him winning among both men and women, among every age and income group. Nationwide, he can claim the support of almost every elected Republican who has made an endorsement. Representative Ralph Norman of South Carolina is the only member of Congress from some, anywhere who has publicly supported Haley. In modern times, no contested nomination fight in either party has ever been settled with such dispatch. Biden has depicted Trump as a danger a would-be despot who would dismantle the NATO alliance, deny women the right to make fundamental health decisions, and imperil democratic institutions. That's part of an effort to make November not a referendum on Biden's presidency, but a choice between him and Trump. Don't compare me to the almighty, Biden had repeatedly said. One of his favorite political adages, compare me to the alternative. 
Trump is making comparisons these days, too. He tells voters that the southern border was more secure, the economy stronger, and a crime lower when he was president. Some of those assertions are questionable. Since Biden became president, the U.S. murder rate has declined. The unemployment rate has hit record lows, although inflation has risen. At CPAC, Trump warned the Serban women that they would be threatened by gangs of undocumented immigrants invading their territory if Biden were reelected. A vote for Trump is your ticket back to freedom, Trump said. His language is dark. If your passport out of tyranny and its only escape from Joe Biden faces fast track to hell. Then he tried to turn Biden's most ominous warning back on him, a sort of I'm not, you are taunt. The fact is Joe Biden is a threat to democracy, Trump said. He really is a threat to democracy. Let's go on to the money section. And the first story is the Fed could blunder again by Paul Davidson. And inflation gathered force in 2021 and 22. The Federal Reserve notoriously waited too long to raise interest rates, allowing consumer prices to continue to climb sharply. Fed officials now acknowledge. Now the inflation is easing. The Fed may be poised to make another blunder by moving too slowly to cut rates and triggering recession, some economists argue. The longer they wait, the greater the risk that something goes off the rails, said Mark Zandi, chief economist for Moody Analytics. With annual inflation drawing closure, closer to the Fed's 2% goal and some risks to the ec- economy growing, Zandi says the Fed should start lowering rates in March or May at the latest. Inflation is running around 3% or slightly below, based on the two most popular measures, down from a 40-year high of up to 9.1% in June of 2022. But Fed Chair Jerome Powell said last month that a March cut is likely, highly unlikely, and minutes of the Fed's late January meeting released last week has some economists to push their predictions for the first rate decrease in June or later. Many of them say inflation still poses the biggest threat and the Fed is on the right track. I think they're right to be patient, says Barclays economist Mark Giancani. What is the current federal rate? From March 22 to July 23, the Fed lifted its key short-term interest rates from near zero to a 22-year high of 5.2 to 5.5 percent to help wrestle down inflation, which already was slowing as pandemic-related supply chain snarls are resolved. Since then, the central bank has held the rate steady. A drop in the benchmark rate could lower borrowing costs for mortgages, credit cards, cars, and other consumer and business loans, stimulating the economy. The prospect of lower rates already has propelled the stock market to record highs. Is inflation really high right now? Several reports since the Fed meeting seemingly have vindicated the Fed's cautious approach. A core inflation measure that strips out volatile food and energy items increased a hefty 0.4% in January, keeping the annual rise at 3.9% according to the Consumer Price Index. Is the U.S. economy strong right now? Last month, meanwhile, U.S. employers added a booming 353,000 jobs and average annual income growth, which feeds into inflation, jumped to 4.5% from 4.3%. The economy also grew at a sturdy 3.3 annual rate in the past three months of 2023 and a solid 2.5% for the entire year. The takeaway, the economy is not only on a solid footing, but could drive inflation higher again as consumers continue to spend their rapidly rising paychecks. Is rent going down? Granted, inflation flared in January, but that's just one month and it was mostly due to persistent increases in rent and other housing costs. Zandi says rent hikes are expected to ease in the coming months as falling rates for new leases ripple to existing leases. 
Also, a different inflation measure that the Fed watches more closely called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index was at 2.6% in December, and then the Fed's preferred core rating was 2.9%, not far from the 2% target. And if increases in core personal consumption expenditures price increases over the next six months are annualized, inflation is already 1.9%. By that gauge, you've achieved your objective. Are layoffs on the rise? Meanwhile, he says, the economy isn't as robust as it appears. Although job gains have been vigorous, the rate of hiring by employers in November hit the lowest level since 2014, including the pandemic recession. In other words, net job gains have been strong because employers have been loath to lay off workers following severe pandemic-related shortages. And although the nation's gross domestic product grew smartly last year, an alternative measure of economic output that some analysts say is more accurate, which is gross domestic in- income, has increased feebly. Zandi, in turn, argues the risk of tipping the economy into recession is now greater than the chances of nudging inflation higher. You need to be careful that you're not going to keep, to keep your foot on the economy's brake too long. If the central bank wakes for cl- clearer signs that the labor market or the broader economy is deteriorating, it won't be behind the curve he wrote in the clients. According to a model that accounts for a variety of economic indicators, including GDP, jobs, and inflation, the Fed's key rate should also be at 4% rather than 5.25%, Zandi says. That could still be well above the Fed's estimate of a long-term rate of 2.5%. Our next story is titled, Why Airplane Seat Selection Fees Are Ambiguous, by Zach Wicker. I am old enough to remember a time when you could pick your seat for free on every flight or just about every airline. That's because those pesky fees we now have are relatively new. They started to gain traction among full-service carriers in the mid to late 2000s, and by 2018, the big three U.S. carriers were by charging them on at least some tickets. There was a time there was no Byzantine ticket structures where some fares included seat selection and others barred you from choosing your location on the plane in advance, or at least from doing so at cost. Nowadays, it's different. Low-cost airlines like Spirit and Frontier, of course, charge extra for just about everything. And even the legacy carriers, American Delta and United, have fare classes and economy class now that won't include seat selection. Some charge extra depending on the seat's location, even if you paid for tickets that include selection. British Airlines takes things a step that is ridiculously far, charging business class passengers a fee on top of their ticket price to select their flatbed seats. For example, on a round-trip itinerary departing from New York on February 22nd and returning from London on on March 6th, it costs about $130 per person each way to choose a seat in business on top of the $3,300 for the round-trip ticket. Keep in mind that pricing is also dynamic and will rise or drop depending on timing and the exact location of the seats, with seats in the center of the plane closer to the middle-class dividers costing less. I'm afraid these fees are becoming a staple with airlines. These fees are beginning to rival what they collect for baggage in many, by many carriers. The rapid embrace of assigning seat fees by all airlines has been a surprise to me. The extent to which they have been powerful generators of revenue have been a surprise to me as, all, as well. Most airlines charge seat selection fees one way or another, whether it's by selling lower fare tickets that don't include seat preferences or simply by making passengers pay for their seats individually. 
Although the fees have become common across the industry, not every passenger on every flight pays them outright. For example, as a frequent flyer with Delta, I have complimentary access to preferred seats in the main cabin, those closer to the front of the plane, and that other passengers would need to pay extra to select during booking. Fee seat selection for preferred or extra legrooms is valuable, if somewhat frustrating, perk for frequent flyers, especially now that upgrades are getting harder to come by. As I mentioned before, you don't have to pay to select a seat, but you're more likely to wind up stuck between two passengers at the back of the plane if you don't. Now let's go into sports, and we'll start with some baseball. Cubs are thrilled about Bellinger return on bargaining the, on bargain deal by Bob Nightingale. The Chicago Cubs woke up with the new Sunday morning, drove to their spring training facility, and when they walked into their clubhouse cafeteria, the man they had been talking about all winter was already waiting for them. Cody Bellinger is back. Yep, right where he belongs. Bellinger, who spent the winter rudely discovering the teams around the league, were skeptical whether his 2023 comeback season was a fluke, signed a three-year, $80 million contract late Saturday night, hoping to prove everyone wrong. It was a massive discount from the $200 million-plus contract he was originally seeking, but he now has the opportunity to show the world he's still one of the most elite players in the game with his bridge-style contract. Bellinger will earn $30 million in 2024, $30 million in 2025, $20 million in 2026, and will have the ability to opt out of the deal and hit free agency again after each season. Bellinger gets a high annual salary, and the Cubs avoid a long-term commitment protected in case he isn't the same player that won the hearts of the fans and organization. Just so excited, man, Cubs veteran starter Kyle Hendricks said, I think you see the reactions in here we are always been hoping for. We know how much he wanted to be here just to get it figured out for both sides is just so amazing for our ball club. Bellinger, who was a non-tendered by the Los Angeles Dodgers after the 2022 season, finished 10th in the MVP voting and was comeback player of the year for the Cubs. He led the team in batting 307, RBIs at 97, slugging percentage at 525, and OPS of 881. His 26 home runs were the most since his 2019 MVP season. I was checking the free agent tracker almost all offseason, Cubs infielder Nick Madrigal said, hoping for him to come back. So it was not so much a relief, but just a lot of happiness to see him back in a Cubs uniform. We saw what he could do for this team, and just everyone were so comfortable having him in the locker room, not only on the field, but he's such a great impact in the clubhouse, I can't imagine not having him here. Said club's infielder David Boat, he was not just a fan favorite, he was a favorite in here also. Cub fans pleaded with the ownership all winter to sign Bellinger. The Cubs players lobbied all spring in the front office to bring him down. Finally, there was a three-month stare-down. The Cubs' patience paid off, believing all along that no one coveted him more than they did. Simply with 11 teams downsizing their payroll this year, including five teams slashing their payroll by at least $40 million, the market Bellinger anticipated never materialized. It made no sense for him to keep sitting out what he wanted to, that he wanted to return to the Cubs all along, knowing that the desire was mutual. He was such a leader for the team, Hendricks said. It's just amazing things got figured out, and obviously a huge, huge peach of this team. Keeping the core together is going to be so much fun now. There was little void in where, I'm sure, before he came back. The Cubs, who finished just one game out of the playoff spot last year with their September collapse, now believe they have the missing piece they need to win the NL Central. They hired manager Craig Consul from the Milwaukee Brewers with a record eight-year $40 million contract. 
signed Japanese starter Shota Imanga to a four-year $53 million contract, brought in a veteran reliever Hector Nervas for $9 million, veteran outfielder David Petrella, minor service minor league contract, and traded for infielder Michael Bush. You know the impact of Bellinger when his arrival can push center fielder Pete Acro Armstrong back to the minors, and he appeared to be just as genuinely thrilled as anyone in the clubhouse. It was a great way to wake up, said Crow Armstrong, who constantly praised Bellinger for being a mentor. He reaches all aspects of this team and hopefully brings the same energy this year. I have all the faith in the world he will come. Let's go to college basketball now. Wake Forest gaining upset momentum by Jordan Mendoza. For most of the past month, Wake Forest has been fighting an uphill battle to get its, itself into a projected NCAA tourney post after Saturday, the Demon Deacons very well could be slated into the field after picking up a major upset victory over surging Duke and, most importantly, getting a much-desired quad one victory. Wake Forest entered the weekend one of the, most, one of the first four teams out of the most recent USA Today sports bracket technology prediction and was coming off an epic beatdown of fellow ACC bubble team in Pittsburgh. Against the Blue Devils, the Wake Forest had a hot second half when it made 16 of 23 shots in front of a record crowd at Lawrence Joel Veterans Memorial's Coliseum. Guard Hunter Salas also had a big day with 29 points, including the game-clinching free throws in the final sections. The lack of big wins has largely been the reason why the Demon Deacons have been flying under the radar for much of the season, but what's kept them lurking is that they have no bad loss. The recent emergence of Florida, a team Wake Forest beat in November, resulted in that win coming, becoming the lone quad one victory for the team this season. After Saturday, Wake Forest is now 2-5 and five in quad one games, while having the fourth best NET ranking in the NACC at 27. If there's any more reason to give Steve Forbes' squad credit for what it's done this season, look no farther than the team it just beat. They're not respected the way they should be nationally, Duke head coach John Seaver said post-game. The Demon Deacons are in a position to make the tournament for the first time since 2017, and that's why they lead the winners and losers on the bubble on the final Saturday of February. So the winners were Seton Hall. After spending time just outside of the projected field, Seton Hall bypassed the first floor by moving into 11-seat spot, and they'll keep a spot after another win against fellow bubble team in Baltimore in Butler. The upcoming week will be the biggest of the year for Shailene Holloway's team, which has to go on the road to face Creighton and Connecticut. No easy task for any team in the country. Mississippi State. If there's a team playing itself out of the bubble and into a tournament, it's Mississippi State. The Bulldogs rating rattled off their fifth consecutive win by beating a pesky LSU by 20 points after a timid performance in the win against Ole Miss. Freshman guard Josh Hubbard went on with a career-high 32. The case could be made that the win streak is not as big as it could be, given none of them were quad one victories, but Mississippi State will get its biggest test of the season in the next two weeks with three quad one games in a row against Kentucky, Auburn, and Texas A&M. For Colorado, the Pac-12 is certainly certain to have two bids in Arizona and Washington State, and Colorado will take the lead for a potential third spot after a blowout win over Utah. The Buffalo has been shaky in recent weeks, but the double overtime win over Southern California last week might give Colorado a run for a tournament spot. Against Utah, Colorado lit it up behind the arc with 10 of three-pointers in the 89-65 victory. 
Colorado likely needs to win out the worthy of a spot, but it's not out of the realm with the only quad one opponent left being Oregon in two weeks. Losers were Cincinnati, and the free fall in Cincinnati continues for the Bearcats, who are now barely clinging to stay in the hunt for a tournament spot. Cincinnati had, had another chance to pick up a quad one reign at TCU, but it fell apart in the second half en route to an 18-point loss. There's still a slim path for Cincinnati to stay in the field, but it's going to take a Herculean effort to keep it alive, with the next game being a visit to any team number one, Houston. And Ole Miss is a loser. College basketball fans are quickly learning how misleading the projected 13-0 start was for Mississippi. The Rebels have felt the wrath of the SEC in recent weeks, with the latest result being a 13-point home loss to a struggling South Carolina team. It capped off what was a disappointing week after failing on the road to rival Mississippi State, a team it beat less than a month earlier. Granted, four of their five losses came against quad one opponents, but they've been all games the Rebels have needed to boost what has been a lackluster resume. Of all the bubble teams, Ole Miss has the worst NET rating at 68. Another quad one opportunity is on the horizon with Alabama coming to Oxford as it's becoming a do-or-die time for Ole Miss. Villanova. It's hard to really criticize a team going on the road against the top team in the country, but when you're as shaky as a team at Villanova, wins are necessary even against the mightiest of opponents. Connecticut had no issues with the Wildcats securing a 24-point win over the visiting team. Nova had picked up some steam recently, entering Saturday on a three-game winning streak, with some of those victories becoming against other bubble teams. The, the high NET ranking of 34 is keeping Villanova alive, with it being the fourth best spot in the Big East. There are plenty quad one teams left for the Wildcats to win, but they need to turn it better results if Nova wants to get back in the tournament. Texas A&M. What is going on in the college station? Two weeks ago, Texas A&M handled Tennessee at home and was poised for a tournament spot. They haven't won since, and the Aggies are in real danger of falling into first four competition and possibly out of the field entirely. The Volunteers enacted revenge Saturday with a dominant 34-point victory in a game where Texas A&M was out of its early. During this fourth game skid, Texas A&M had losses to Vanderbilt and Arkansas, not the type of defeats the selection committee will take kindly, especially when the quad three record is two and four. Wednesday's game against South Carolina is nearing a must-win territory. Bubble game losers. Saturday's games were wasted efforts, opportunities for Butler and Utah to leapfrog other bubble teams in the crowded area, and it's likely result in them falling out of the projected field as of now and make it an even tougher hill to climb. Now let's go to some state-by-state. State. Norwich, Connecticut, General Dynamic Electric Boats announced the result of its 2023 hiring campaign with a plan for more hiring this year. Even after hiring 5,300 employees in 2023, EBC still plans on hiring another 5,000 in 2024 between Connecticut and Rhode Island, EB President Kevin Green said. And out of Worcester, Massachusetts, five horses that once trotted under the logo of the Worcester Police Department were donated to four different police departments following a decision by the police chief to retire the mounted unit. And out of Providence, Rhode Island, the magnificent snowy owl, a sometimes winter visitor to Rhode Island, apparently hasn't shown up in the ocean state this year. Two years ago, social media was filled with striking photographs of the beautiful birds in southern New England, but none have been spotted this year. 
Out of Burlington, Vermont, the two men facing federal charges connected to a murder-for-hire plot that led to the 2018 abduction and killing of a Vermont man will go on trial in September, a federal judge has said. Out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a plan to launch the city's first water taxi service may have hit some rough waters already. Senior Assistant Attorney General Jane Farini said that commercial crafters are prohibited from using the piers, floats, and docks at Prescott Park by city ordinance. And out of Kennebunkport, Maine, neighbors of a kennel say that their lives are disrupted daily by the incessant barking of dogs. They say the noise is affecting their quality of life from their holidays to summer mornings in their backyards, from their ability to work from home to their property values and beyond. Well, that's it for this edition of USA Today for February 26, 2024. If you have any questions about the articles I've read, call the Chris Listen line at 860-727-9579. I'm Lou Mirando, and so long until next time.